strategy, design, marketing, UX, digital, development. This is Agencies That Build. This show is dedicated to leaders and teams that design and deploy in the digital world. My name is Jesse, and I'm a marketer and an agency owner. And I'm Varun. I'm not a marketer, but a coder and an agency partner. This show is sponsored by Together We Ship. On a mission to help agencies grow. All right, here we are. Varun, my friend, how are you today? I'm good. I am energized. You know, before the call, I was thinking, like, you know, I, 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 every morning I fill up this um, journal in which one question is usually what energizes me. So today I, I, I mentioned uh, sleep. Sleep energizes me. But, you know, I think just before the call, I was reading, I was going through our today's guest and reading through that and then reminded me, look, this is what energizes me is the conversation that we have with the people like these, you know. That's what really give me the energy. So I'm very excited. You know, let's get started. Tell us who do we have today? Excellent. Today, I, I would agree with you. I actually really look forward to these chats as well. Everyone has a different perspective. So today, our guest has worn a number of hats, software developer, project manager, agile coach, salesperson, entrepreneur, the list goes on. He has over 20 years of experience. He's passionate about software development, the software development industry. Um, he has grown his company to over 60 consultants and um, multi-millions in revenue. I won't give a specific number. He can choose to give that if he'd like. Um, and he's he's got a really interesting business model too. He's 100% employee owned and 100% remote, which we'll get into a little bit here in a minute. Um, president and CEO of Test Double, Todd Kaufman. Todd, welcome to the program. Hi, Hi. thanks Hi. for having me. It's the episode. <laughs> I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. No problem. So. Um, Let's start off by asking this question, like we do on most of our episodes. What is some bogus misconception, some sort of uh, strategy that you'd like to bust, some sort of myth or something you'd like to set the record straight on? What do you got for us today? Yeah, I feel like uh, the the last couple of years have helped me debunk this myth quite a bit. But I think the the myth that you have to be in an office space to be productive in the software industry is completely bogus. I think at this point, um, almost everyone was forced to at least work remotely in our industry over the last couple of years for, for varying points. People are going back to the offices now. Um, and I really just don't, I don't think it's a more productive environment for the vast majority of software developers that we come in contact with. I think they all prefer the flexibility, the autonomy, um, and really the level of focus that they get working remotely. How did you guys get into working remotely? I mean, we've talked to a lot of, you know, as part of the podcast, obviously over throughout the pandemic and then after and before we've talked to a lot of people about the struggles with going remote, how they balance that, how they deal with it from a cultural perspective. But, you know, from your, you guys have been a hundred percent remote as we've, we've chatted. What, let me start by asking like, what, why, why, <laughs> what drew that, you know, why, why'd you start that way? I guess, you know, what was the thought process behind it? If you can talk a little bit about how you got there. Yeah. I mean, I, it, I'd love to rewrite history and, you know, say that myself and my co-founder, Justin Searles saw this coming and that we, you know, we were great visionaries and knew that our industry was eventually going to be largely remote, but really we were, you know, uh, pretty fiscally conservative in the early days of our company. So we, we resisted the urge to spend money on anything until we felt like it was required. Uh, and that was 10 years ago. So at that time, we maybe didn't have as good a bandwidth. We maybe didn't have as much tooling, et cetera, uh, as we do now to support remote work. So at the time we would just, you know, drive back and forth to each other's houses and work because it was just the two of us. Um, as we started, you know, hiring and, and bringing more people into the company, we found that the model of work from home really resonated with them and that they had been trapped in the big cube farms of the giant insurance companies and banks for a number of years. And really, once they started working remotely, they're like, oh, yeah, I can't can't imagine working any other way. So once we, we kind of found that, yeah, that was really how every one of us liked working 
we, we catered to that. We, we decided that, Hey, we are a remote first company and we'll compensate people uh, if they're going into a co-working space. Cause I acknowledge like remote work isn't a hundred percent great and 0% like bad. There are trade-offs as with everything. Uh, but with us, we want people to work where they best operate, where they're most focused, most energized, et cetera. So we give them the choice of working wherever they like. So you're saying that when you started the company, you were remote from the very beginning, like you and your co-founder were pretty much like doing the idea of remote working from home. And then when you hired your first employees, that's how you started. Like you gave them the option, like there is no office space here. Like you are going to join us and going to work from home. How did that, you know, what, what kind of response did you get when you spoke to multiple people? Because this is 10 years ago, like now it is very common, but 10 years ago, I imagine it was not very straightforward, acceptable kind of situation. I mean, you know, yeah. how, how was that experience? I think we made it to about our, our fifth full-time employee before we had someone who really felt like they worked a lot better in office environments. And they felt like, you know, they weren't someone who was hundred percent aligned with just working remotely days on end. The rest of us were all pretty comfortable with it. And I had worked remotely for, I don't know, two years, I think before starting the company. So I was already pretty comfortable with it as well. And we can kind of share a little bit about what works and what doesn't um, with the people coming in. But that fifth person, they also embraced the freedom of it. They, we were all largely in central Ohio is where we got started. Uh, as a remote company, they're the first ones to ask like, hey, would it be okay if I moved to Chicago? And we're like, I don't care where you live. Like, I don't care where you work. Like, these are the expectations from our clients, like figure it out. So they were able to move to Chicago and they actually uh, would go into the office of one of our uh, competitors, our friendly competitors, and actually just kind of squat in their offices. So we, it helped us to build relationships with some other people as well. So what what did work for you um, when it comes to the remote? Like from the beginning, what type of message or what processes did you set up for them yeah. to be successful and stay successful? Or even key tools. I would add key tools into that, you know. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Good internet connections is a must. <laughs> and that's not uh, always easily accessible. Uh, we actually had uh, another one of our first 10 hires move to, you know, kind of the remote like wilderness of Colorado and uh, figuring out how to work with Wi-Fi and good connectivity there was a challenge for a while, but uh, he was able to do it as well. Um, I think the, the biggest stuff with us, I think the number one concession that you make is connectivity. So you tend to feel like you're not part of the team because you're not coming in and, you know, having those casual conversations by the water cooler or, you know, just going out for lunch ad hoc with a handful of your team. Those things don't tend to happen. So you have to be pretty deliberate about building in that connectivity in other ways. So we actually implemented um, a little automated bot that just pairs you up with somebody on a weekly basis. Um, so we call it coffee time, where it literally just encourages you to go find 30 minutes on the other person's calendar once a week and talk about anything. Like it can be work, sure, but we encourage you to talk about, you know, what you did over the weekend, movies you saw, et cetera, hobbies that you have. Um, and that's been great for just like finding out a little bit more about your coworkers and who they are. Uh, we started doing company retreats as well pretty early on. So in, uh, in normal days, uh, which we're still trying to get back to, um, we'll do two retreats a year and where we bring everybody together. And some of that is like strategizing on the business, sharing kind of what our accomplishments are, where we're headed next, et cetera. But a good portion of it was just kind of getting away from client-focused work and connecting with your team, um, you know, getting to, getting to know each other better and, and really just kind of understanding who who's on the other side of the Zoom call, uh, you know, five days a week that you're working with. So that's been some of the stuff that's worked out really well. We do a weekly uh, meeting as well, where it's just kind of free flowing topics where we'd at least get to, to see each other and, and talk about, you know, whatever was coming up. So those things I think are critical. You have to build in the connectedness piece. Otherwise, uh, I think it just tends to feel like a, a cooperative of independent consultants, which isn't what we wanted to build.
You also you mentioned. Try. Oh, you go, Varun. Okay. You also mentioned that right from the beginning, the expectations with the clients were pretty much set. Like they know what clients are expecting, and employees know what clients are expecting. So clients already knew that the team that they're working with are remote from the beginning, right? What type of engagement model? I'm, I'm trying to get into a little more into the process of your company specifically, like what type of clients you have that you work with, what type of development methodologies that you follow that allowed your remote team to be successful? Yeah, I think the the clients haven't always been 100% accommodating of remote work either. Uh, we've lost out on bigger opportunities that just didn't feel like they wanted a partner coming in uh, who would be remote. And I think it's understandable in some sense. A lot of companies, I think, you know, want you to be inside their office spaces and then you go in there and everyone has headphones on, no one's communicating via any other means than Slack. And it feels just like, you know, working from home. Uh, so I think that there are valid reasons. I think there are certain types of projects that, um, especially in the early phases, may be a little bit more collaborative and a little bit more productive if everybody's kind of in a single space working in them. Um, we typically are working in an integrated model. So we're not an agency that is typically, hey, we have this idea for an MVP, build it and ship it to us, and then we'll, we'll go take it from there. Instead, we're usually meeting companies who are scaling. So they've already had their first, you know, kind of couple of rounds of funding. They are growing. Uh, they're experiencing all of those challenges of scale that tends to hit companies about that are successful at about that series C round. So that tends to be what types of projects we work on. A lot of that is pairing up with our, our client personnel. So it helps us come up to speed faster on their business domain, their code base, et cetera. And it also allows us to share a lot of our experience to hopefully leave their development team in a better state than we found them. And that's always our goal. So that model is probably one of the more difficult ones to work remotely in because you're not side by side with, you know, somebody else that you're trying to show how to do TDD or, or whatnot. That's, uh, that's been a little bit more challenging. There's, there's been plenty of times where we go on site for the first week or so to kick off the engagement and it allows us to build up those relationships a little bit more. Uh, so then when you're, you know, commenting on a pull request or something like that, it's not, you know, just some stranger from the internet, like, you know, criticizing your work. It's someone that you've got to know a little bit better. So we've already kind of established a little bit of that trust. Um, and that, that tends to go a long way, but it's a really good question. I think the type of consulting that we do is actually the least conducive to remote work, but we've just gotten more deliberate and better about it throughout the years. So it's still wildly successful. Yeah. It is, it is pretty strange to hear the model in which you mentioned your team works and the way you are making it work in remote is pretty, pretty interesting too. So most of the projects that you do are more like time and material engagements versus fixed costs because you are basically part of their clients, your client's team. So it is like, we'll, we will be with you until you need us something on those lines, right? Yeah, so we don't do fixed bid, fixed scope projects. I think uh, Venkat Subramaniam wrote in one of his books that like fixed bids are broken promises. And it's always kind of resonated with my experience. Uh, you have to get really, really good at estimating uncertain things for that to work well. So instead, we, we don't want the client to experience all the risk either. So what we do is we do open-ended contracts. So our clients, any one of our clients can fire us with a, a seven-day notice. Uh, that keeps a healthy pressure on us to, to continue adding value. If we're not adding value, like I'm going to be encouraging them to ramp our team down. Like it's just what makes sense. Uh, but the flip side is it's a lower barrier of entry too. So clients don't feel like they need to procure budget for $500,000 to engage with our team they can get started with just a couple of consultants, you know, for as, as little as, you know, 10 weeks to try and make, you know, progress against one of their objectives. And that can be a much lower spend. But we found that typically once clients start working with our consultants, we tend to be pretty sticky. They tend to see a lot of value and they, they find other work for us. So that's worked out really well for us. 
how, why, like, how does it work out? I mean, I'm, I, so I, I totally get the idea. I, I want to sell that all the time. Like I have a client who hires us for the time without worrying about time and cost, you know, or like the fixed cost without knowing what will they end up spending. Right. It's, it's not an easy sell. So tell me, like, what is your secret sauce? Like, how can you, are, are you able to sell the open? No, I'm not, I'm not going to give away all my secrets today, just so you know, but uh, no, I think the, uh, <laughs> what, what we've seen work is, is honestly trying to be respectful and operate in our clients' best interests. So that includes budget. So it's not that we want to ignore their budget by any means. We want to understand what their budget is. We want to be good stewards of their funds. If we see, hey, we're 50% through this budget, but we've only accomplished 30% of the objective, like we're probably going to call timeout, bring the right people back into the room and like, let's start talking about this. Like, can we shrink scope? Can we, you know, eliminate some features? Can we move more efficiently in some way, shape or form? Or should we, you know, procure more budget to really try to get this thing over the line? Um, we tend to voice those concerns early on projects so that, people still have enough time to make a decision that, that kind of brings this thing in. Um, we really adopt a, an agile mindset and it's not the big, you know, a uh, scrum or safe approaches or anything like that. It's more of just the original mindset of agile, which was embrace change, right? Like let's not throw away plans. We want to do some planning. We just don't want to be beholden to it when, you know, we're at the most uncertain point of a project we want to iterate, get feedback, and, and keep adjusting. So I think that that model works well for almost all software projects. Um, if you're not doing that and you're one of our clients, our team's going to be gradually guiding you toward it, right? I think that that piece of always influencing our clients, trying to get them to a better state, you know, you make a lot of little changes over the course of a year-long engagement you tend to have an outsized impact. And, and I think clients see that. So they keep asking us for more. Do you find that when you're trying to procure clients and you're, you know, your differentiators in the market in terms of how you're pitching this model to say somebody who's more of a project based rather than time and materials, do you find that um, it, I'm trying to figure out how to word the question in an open-ended manner, but maybe I'll just get to the point where I just, do people bring you in instead of like an, another employee hire? You know, I'd love to hear a little bit about the client engagement from a thought process standpoint and in terms of how, and again, don't reveal a little secret sauce maybe Sure. Um, in this, because I feel like this is something a lot of agencies struggle with. Do we do it this way? Do we do it project-based? Because then you have to have change order conversations. You know, neither one is great, <laughs> but both can be awesome if you do it correctly. So would love to hear a little bit about your experience there. Yeah, we've, we've done both. So we, we've done a mixture of consulting. We call it staff integration is what I've been previously describing. Uh, most people think of it as staff augmentation, but that, you know, paints a vivid picture for our team of like cube farms in a bank where you're just told what to do and it's kind of a miserable environment. So we're trying to apply a little bit of marketing salve to that to, to make it sound a little bit nicer. Uh, but we've done product delivery as well. We've done assessments, we've done training, et cetera, for clients. Um, we, we really try to, to help in whatever way we can with those clients. When we run into product delivery focused companies and clients are comparing us to them, I almost encourage them to go with those companies. Those companies are typically more well-versed at that discovery phase, which is really key because that's where you really unlock, okay, how big is this thing? Are we going to be a good solution for your expectations or not? Um, and, you know, ideally the ones with really good UI UX firms or UI UX personnel are firms that are well positioned to paint a vivid picture of what this thing's going to look like uh, for clients. And that traditionally hasn't been us. We've partnered with some companies that are really, really good at UI UX. And uh, as a set of specialists, we, we provide a pretty comprehensive, valuable solution there. But I, oftentimes, like we're happier kind of going after a lot of those integration model like work. It just it winds up being some of the bigger code bases in the world. It winds up being some of the like harder problems. And we tend to have an outsized impact on the teams that we work with there. So our our mission is to improve how the world builds software. 
say a small product delivery engagement, two people for three months, we're not going to turn our nose up at that or anything. We're not elitist, but like really what we're doing in that model is showing a business owner or a stakeholder or a product owner, Hey, here's a healthy like way to work with a software delivery team. Your impact's kind of constrained at that point. When we deploy at some of our biggest engagements right now, we're key members of, you know, hundred person engineering teams. And we're helping to like, you know, really provide a lot of that shift in mentality so that everybody in that organization improves. And hopefully that's, that's, you know, long lasting after we're gone as well. Those tend to just be the engagements that we feel like we have a bigger impact on. Do you, you said something interesting because I know you guys can scale up or down depending on the way that you work with clients. You know, something we ask a lot of agency owners is, do you say no? Do you say no to projects that come in? I think with your business model, it's an interesting, I would ask you the same question. You know, is there a point where you're like, mm, that's not quite the right fit for us or it's not big enough project or the investment is, or are you open kind of saying yes and you can structure those engagements however feels right for you based off the interesting work? Yeah, I think that what we've started prioritizing. So right now we have more sales than we have people. So we've been in an oversold capacity for 18 months at this point. Uh, Things kind of rebounded quickly uh, post COVID. Well, I shouldn't say post COVID, but (laughs) as 2020 was winding down. Post dramatic COVID. How about that? Yeah, I guess post first wave of COVID. Um, Yeah. And from there, we've, we've just had to start being a lot more choosy and we're doing it a little bit selfishly right now. So right now, what we're saying is, okay, clients who are interested in deploying bigger teams, those are ones where we're going to have a bigger impact. Let's go after those things. Maybe clients that are expanding in technology or in industries that we care about and we're interested in helping within maybe we'll prioritize those higher. So we've done a lot of work in the, in the energy space, helping to build systems that, you know, we're hopeful allow for more renewable energy sources uh, to power our grid in the future. That means something to us, right? Like that's interesting. You know, our team likes working in Ruby rails. We do a lot of work there, but they're also interested in Golang. They're also interested in Elixir. So when we see those opportunities come in, we can prioritize those higher as well. But we've, we've told a variety of clients that we're not a fit either because of uh, maybe unrealistic expectations is probably the most common cause. Uh, someone has, hey, I want to build this thing, but for this industry and my budget's 50K and they're describing a quarter of a million dollar problem. Like we'll let them know, hey, we think you have a quarter of a million dollar problem. We wish it the best. We're not a good fit. We can't do it for 50K. Or maybe they're, maybe they're a little bit uh, less open to, to change and improvement. And those tend to be, you know, just kind of butts and seats environments. And we know that's not going to be where our team wants to work. And ultimately right now, it's just really, a really, you know, challenging market for software talents. We, we recognize if we don't find projects that our people want to work in, they're going to find them themselves, whether it's at testable or elsewhere. That's pretty um, interesting and very cool to hear that you are um, focusing so much on what do your employees want to work on and we take on projects that inspires them because you are so, it's so right. I mean, at the end of the day, it's the team which helps companies grow. So you need to align, well, everybody in the company needs to be aligned with a common vision. And if that vision is to, uh, in your case, at least, for the energy sector, uh, working on the project that that helps with the sustainable future, that makes so much sense. Um, besides that, besides giving them the type of work they want to work on, what else do you do to keep them inspired and motivated and you know things that keep them going and stay with you because you know you are like eighty five people now. It's a decent yeah. size, you know, and um, yeah, to, to keep them, keep them, you know, fulfilled. Retained, happy. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, I think this is a question a lot of uh, business owners are asking themselves in our space right now. Um, you know, we started the company really because we read Drive by Daniel Pink and it resonated so loudly with us that we felt like we didn't have autonomy, mastery, and purpose at our current company the way the book described. So we decided to build it. 
And, you know, it took us a while to, to clarify what those things meant for test double. Uh, so, you know, we were probably, you know, in our first few years of running the business, people would be like, well, what, what's testable do? Why are you in business? We're like, we're just trying to keep the lights on, right? Like <laughs> we're just trying to like, make sure we have enough runway to keep people employed. But after a while, like that gets pretty old. Like you start realizing, Hey, if I'm going to put in all this effort to start this business, like it needs to have an outsized impact. So that's when we both kind of came up with, Hey, improving this broken industry of software development. That is what motivates me. That's the wind in my sails. So we had our purpose. Autonomy, we've always been pretty focused on. Like we didn't become, you know, remote because we wanted to be remote. We were remote because we wanted people to be autonomous. We wanted the people closest to the problems to be the ones to solve them. Uh, So if that meant figuring out the balance of where you work best and how you can achieve focus while balancing all the other stuff in your life, and that led you to a remote, awesome. Like that's, that's what we want there too. Mastery is the piece that we're leaning into harder these days. I think what what's great and also horrible about our industry is that it's constantly changing and evolving. Uh, sometimes change just for change's sake. Other times we see like some, some significant improvements in how we work. And if you don't keep up with that, you pretty quickly fall behind. So I think consulting one is a great avenue for that because you get a lot of different challenges. So instead of you becoming a business domain expert at some product company for five years, you're probably working at 10 different clients in that same period of time at a consulting organization. So you get a lot of variety. Um, Further, you start to see the same patterns emerge and you start building up the toolkit for like addressing those patterns. So I think really leaning into that, like how do we support accelerating the growth of our people in their careers? If we are really exceptional at that, I don't think people will look to go elsewhere until it's a situation where they've almost like graduated beyond what Testable can provide. And that's great. Like if that's the outcome for why someone leaves, you know, I'm all for it. So it's something we hear often from agency owners too, in terms of providing environments where people can learn and grow, you know, and then they're, and nobody has said it this directly, but it's, you know, when they outgrow you, but the best part about that is when they outgrow you, they take you with them because they're going to need say, an agency. <laughs> yeah. Who, who do they think of the call when they run into some <laughs> challenges then? Right. Yeah. I think that's, yeah. that's a great outcome. I mean, if, if Testable propelled 150 experts within software who wound up starting their own businesses, because we're also building in like the financial acumen to do so. I would, I would love for that to be the outcome. I think that would be phenomenal. Um, so yeah, I think that, you know, people don't want to be termed an up and out organization. Like I don't think of us that way. I think the path to, to really become excellent within software and especially within consulting is a long one. Like it's a, you know, 10, 20 year path at times. So I hope we have people who stick around here for 10, 15, 20 years, no doubt. But if they ever are feeling like they're they're not growing, uh, they're plateauing in their career, yeah, I think we'd all try to figure out a way for them to, to find what's next in their career. When you guys have a pretty interesting staffing model anyways, in terms of your mix of full-time versus subs, um, if I'm understanding correctly, you know, one of the things that I, I know we talked about prior to this recording that I want to ask pretty bluntly is like, you guys made a pretty big shift in the middle of that what are we calling it? The first wave of COVID, um, you know, in terms of moving to employee owned, we'd love to kind of hear a little bit about the thought process there, how you got into it. If you're, you're open to sharing some of that, some of that story, maybe a little yeah. bit more of the secret sauce. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, we, so, I mean, that's, that's the other piece that's like really difficult to keep up with, especially the shift that happened from COVID that I think none of us were prepared for was all of a sudden all of these West Coast VC-backed product companies are now remote. So the competition for the the software developer in Columbus, Ohio is really, really intense. Uh, So it was well-timed in the sense that we we feel like we need to have an equity option for our people. If we don't, we're just going to get left behind by a lot of these kind of VC-backed companies the timing itself was not fantastic. 
Uh, so, I mean, we spent all of 2019, we've had this vision for a while that we didn't ever want to be, you know, the type of owners or founders who are standing on the backs of others. So when we felt that, you know, really the vast majority of the, the value of test double was generated by our team, they should be the ones receiving that value in the form of profitability and compensation. And we've had profit sharing, you know, kind of plans and bonuses and stuff in place in the past to try and like uh, close that gap. But as we started looking at, you know, how equity also affects the ability for, you know, owners to exit for a more, you know, holistic view on what the exit strategy was for the business, et cetera, it started to feel like the ESOP really sang to us. Like it made a lot of sense. People didn't need to contribute cash. So they were able to just receive shares on an annual basis. Um, and some, some owners will just like transition the company via sale of, of the shares. And that's okay, except that it's, it's a little bit inequitable. So if Varun's, you know, grandmother left him three quarters of a million dollars, but Varun maybe isn't our, you know, best contributor. Like, do we really want Varun to have such an outsized stake in the equity of the company? Strictly hypothetical. I'm sure you're a fantastic contributor, Varun. Um, but like, that's, that's kind of in the similarly, like if someone's a single parent who didn't have good credit, who is struggling to make ends meet, like, did we want them left out of an opportunity to own an outcome in this business? We felt like that was probably key first and foremost, why ESOP made sense, but there's a lot of other reasons. I mean, it's, uh, a third party does the valuation every year. So like your, my hands are really tied. Like I, there's nothing I can do to try and like artificially inflate the value of the company or anything like that. It's all done by a third party. Um, the other pieces, like the company doesn't pay as a hundred percent ESOP that is an S corp. We don't pay any federal income tax or state income tax. So that's, you know, 20 to 25% of our profit that stays in the business. Um, all those things just seemed like a really good approach for us. Um, but yeah, it was hard because it's also expensive to get off the ground and we closed April 30th of 2020. So the same month where we're getting a lot of notices from clients that, Hey, we're, we're ending the project early or, Hey, we need to talk about rates or, or one of these other things we were investing, you know, a pretty sizable amount to getting the ESOP off the ground. So yeah, it was, it was a little bit terrifying in the early going, but we're starting to see uh, a lot of the fruits of that labor. We just had our valuation completed again this year, and I'm starting to see statements for our employees grow and grow. So it's a, it's an exciting time to be here for sure. How, how nice. do employees get the visibility and if they get the visibility about the sales pipeline, the future of the business and stuff, I know they see the profits and all, I mean, because it is open books now, but what does future look like for them, for the company where they are part owner? How do you do that? Yeah. And it's, it's kind of similar to like, I own shares of Apple. I don't really get to tell, you know, Tim Cook, what he should be doing. Right. Like I'm along for the ride a little bit in that case. Similarly, we'll see what happens. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Similarly, like our people, um, they do have a vote. Should it come to like an M&A situation? Right. So if test double was going to be acquired, something like that, like it would actually go to a vote. Um, So they have a little bit more, you know, than, than most, but um, ultimately uh, the, the decisions about like where we're headed as a company and like how we get there, et cetera. I think largely our leadership team is trying to kind of build a high level plan for what we think makes sense. And that's based off our vision, right? Where we want to be in three to five years. We, we do that on an annual basis. We invite people who are interested in participating to get involved. So if you're really passionate about, hey, I think Testable should be whatever, uh, you know, building courseware to help train people in a specific technology. Awesome. Let's talk about that, right? Like, let's get you involved in our services plan or maybe our marketing plan so that you can chime in with why you think this is so valuable and, you know, we'll help you kind of build out what that plan will look like. And it's not to say that we'll do that stuff 100% of the time. 
but we at least want to, you know, encourage people to, to have a voice in the direction that this company is going. So, yeah, we, we have to communicate, I think, across those pieces consistently. And it's honestly probably not my strongest suit. So we should be communicating, though, about where are we going with recruiting? Where are we going with, you know, sales and marketing? What do we see the next three, six months, nine months shaping up as? Um, it's just, it's hard because as you, you all probably know, like our, our businesses are always evolving. So it's, it's sometimes tough to, to keep up communication with what's actually happening in the business at any, any given point. It sounds like you've built an environment though, too, where it allows people to explore some of those interests they may not, um, they may not want to risk exploring on their own, you know, an environment where you can ask questions and learn from an entrepreneurial situation you both are entrepreneurs you and your co-founder if i'm not mistaken correct yeah so you know it, it sounds like you've built a place where you know where it's open to a point but people could be like hey can you tell me what this is or fill me in on this and just have a little bit of sense of ownership and directional you know yeah inside. definitely no i think that's a, a huge piece of it so I, even with like management of people right so sometimes some companies are hey you're doing such a great job as an ic we're going to pull you into a management role now. And we may or may not give you training, may or may not give you a lot of support, but hey, just, you know, here's here's your 10 direct reports. Good luck. And then, you know, I was in that role. And six months later, I'm like- hey, the force be with you. <laughs> yeah. Six months later, I was like, wow, do I hate this role? Like I, all of the like tangible feedback I had building software, like where I felt like I was steadily making progress, like now I get none of that. Oh, and by the way, whenever something's like, you know, broken, like it's my fault ultimately, even though I may not have the power to fix it. Um, we allow people to, and that's a pretty jaded view of management. So please don't, don't assume that that's like my complete uh, thoughts on management, but it can be challenging, I think, for ICs to move into a management role. So we allow people to take on say two to four other consultants that they want to support, manage, and try it out for a year. Like, see how it feels. See if it feels like it should be 100% of your job, or maybe it should continue to be 10% of your job, or maybe it should be somewhere in between. And depending on the results of that, like, depending on how you're doing, and also depending on your interests, like, we can talk more about what that looks like as a career path. But you don't have to change companies to do that, right? You can get that experience. And conversely, we've had people like work with clients more directly, almost as account managers, and then come back and be like, yeah, I don't really like this. And it's like, okay, stop doing it. It's a really good point um, that you make, because I think it's coming up more and more often, you know, I, I'm, I'll say subtly the great resignation and people changing jobs. I actually read a really interesting quote that speaks to that um, over, over the weekend that was around, you know, when you're a kid, you spend a lot of time trying a whole bunch of different stuff and you're satiating your curiosity, but all of a sudden you're being asked to be an adult and you have to go to work and go to school and make these decisions about who you're going to be when you grow up and you don't get this opportunity to be able to explore and try. Like, as you, I think you said it, part of our conversation was try before you buy. So this ability to be able to embrace, you know, how people want to grow and manage their careers is probably another retention you know, opportunity for you guys from an employee standpoint. I, I would um, hope so. I mean, I think <laughs> I, I got into consulting for that reason. I was like, well, I don't know where I want to go next. I'll just do consulting for a while and see what appeals to me. Lo and behold, yeah. consulting really appealed to me. I like that more than I like working for product companies. So it worked stuck. out well. Yeah. <laughs> and so you guys have, you've tried, um, we ask all of our, our agencies this, you've tried an offshore model, you've tried outsourcing, would love to hear a little bit about your experience there, you know, especially it feeds into this try before you buy conversation. How did that work for you guys? What did you find that worked? What did you find that didn't work is, you know, also the question on the table. Yeah, I think that, you know, ultimately we're, we're a little bit limited by what our clients support. So we're constantly in these, in these sales opportunities, trying to expand the boundaries of how we could work with teams. And lately we're finding that, you know, offshore may work pretty well in some models. And we've found some offshore talent that line up really well with how we work and what, what our capabilities are. So that's allowing us to explore that further in this case in, in Latin America, um, Canada doesn't really count. Canada's kind of same near shore, I guess. I don't, I don't know what you turn them, but um, North America, North America. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. 
we've uh, we've grown our Canadian presence a lot in the last couple of years, and I think some of that's a reflection of we've standardized salary bands, um, you know, kind of irrespective of whether you're in the U.S. or Canada, and you know, with the exchange rate and everything, like our salaries are, are really competitive in Canada. So I think some of that's just been sheer market forces, but also we, what we've really found is that most of our clients don't really care. What they want is some overlap of time zones. They want some amount of consistency and communication, and they want people that they can trust to do good work and deliver. And, you know, it's, it's, you can find those people all over the world. So that's, that's worked out well for us, but it does embody that try, like that experimentation mindset. We've, we've tried to place a lot of little bets throughout the history of the company. Very rarely are we pushing all the chips in on the table. Um, you, you mentioned the client expectations is to have, you know, they, they don't care, which is, I think, very, very, um, we're hearing that a lot. And, you know, it is becoming very common, especially in the last couple of years. Um, but in your model, when you are integrating the team, uh, the teams with the client side on the client team, how does the offshore integration work, I guess? I mean, I'm assuming there is some uh, project, someone who is managing a project or client coordinator, or I don't know what you call some call producers, um, someone of that sort leading from your side and then adding the team from, you know, uh, some other country, and then they're interacting with the clients and how does the whole process work? Yeah, so it's a good good uh, point to make. So one, if the client is new to an offshore model, I would probably admit we're probably not the right company to immediately get you running with it just yet. So our experience is still somewhat limited with offshore. So we don't want to, you know, presume that we can help you get there when we're still figuring out a little bit ourselves. But regardless of the engagement of where people are. We usually have at least at some level, like an executive uh, contact from Test Double, uh, likely myself or, or our, my co-founder or uh, a couple of other people in the company. Um, then we have a client service lead who's literally making sure the trains run on time, communication's effective. Uh, we'll, we'll conduct like retros or huddles internally about what's working, what's not. Even if there's different pockets working within the same company on different projects, we want to bring all of them together so that we kind of understand holistically what are we seeing, you know, what are opportunities for improvement, and how do we approach those. Um, I think that 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 really wouldn't it hasn't changed when we've worked with offshore consultants. It's largely stayed the same, um, and I would see that kind of continuing. Like I think for us, the requirement would be some overlap of time zone and and you know, probably no issues with communicating in English, assuming that that's where our clients are at right now. We're on the cusp of working with some clients who are a lot better at working globally than we are. So I'm a little bit optimistic and hopeful that they'll actually kind of pull us into uh, doing more of that work here in the future. I'm hopeful to learn from them. It's always a good situation to be in. Yep. <laughs> What would you say, I mean, we've talked a lot about how you guys grew, how you got into this, you know, what would you say is the biggest mistake you've made or, you know, one of the challenges that you're facing as you're, you're running an agency, you know, this is, it's an opportunity to kind of part of the chat is learning, learning from each other. So I'm going to ask you and put you on the spot. Yeah, <laughs> it's, a, it's definitely a fair question. That's a really long list. Like I could probably come up with, you know, 20 mistakes I've made this year so far. <laughs> uh, so I'll, to pinpoint one is, is the difficult part. I would say uh, we've, we've largely not been, so we want to be an example for others to follow in our industry, largely. Um, you know, we, we kind of aspire to that. And we're not in a few ways right now, probably the biggest of which is the diversity of our team. And it wasn't like we set out to, to create a team of all white dudes. Um, instead, what we did was as you know, two very privileged white co-founders starting a company, our biggest focus when we were hiring initially was we wanna hire people we can trust from our networks, right? People that we had experience with hands-on. 
lo and behold, our networks looked a lot like we did. So those first few hires from within networks just kind of furthered the problem. And then guess what? Their networks looked a lot like we all did. So we kind of continued that. And, and we've been probably battling back against that since, you know, we, we reached maybe 10 people in one of those first company retreats, like somebody spoke up and was like, well, we have a diversity problem. And we all kind of looked around and we're like, yeah, we do. What's going on here? Um, so I think that in our industry, especially think about it day one, uh, cause we didn't, we thought about it, you know, about three or four years in. And by then we had already set ourselves up to, to have a really hard time affecting change. If you're like us and you're, you know, kind of finding that you're now at a point where you really care about this and you want to make change, no, it's not going to be easy. No, it's not going to be like a, a check that you can write and all of a sudden everything's great. Um, and you're probably going to make even more mistakes trying to, to remedy this, but we're starting to see some traction. Um, so we've, I think the ESOP's a good example of us becoming an equitable organization we also now have salary bands that are public on all our job descriptions. And we're making offers to candidates where there's no negotiation. Like all of these things lead to it being a more equitable organization. It's not a situation where, hey, the best negotiator gets the best you know, salary at this point. Lo and behold, men tend to be more comfortable pressing for higher salaries, right? Now it's a situation where, hey, we have a lot of, of equitable policies and procedures within the company. We've had a focus on making sure we're a very inclusive company, having like employee resource groups and things like that. And now we're, we're encouraging our recruiting team to start focusing on, you know, in, in areas where we know there's more diverse talent than what we have currently. And we're starting to see results. So one, don't, don't think that this is something you can delay on. Think about it day one. And if you didn't listen to, to the first piece of advice, then just know it's there's ways to kind of combat against it, but you got to apply a lot of effort as you go. Nice. All right. So I'm going to shift gears in our questions. Tell us a little, you know, we we, we started off our chat prior, prior to recording a little bit. Today is a it's Marathon Monday here in Boston as we record this episode for those of you watching. So we were all chatting about it before we started recording. But, you know, you you brought up an interesting for those of you watching the video portion of this podcast. Um, Todd's got some cool stuff on the wall. Um, you know, tell us a little bit about you. How many marathons have you run? You know, yeah. your, you, you know, I'm going to go straight straight there because yeah, I, uh... I am not running any right now. It's yeah. I, neither am I right now. To be fair, it's amazing how quickly you can get out of uh, race shape. Uh, and you know the that probably should have been more of my focus in 2020 was like, well, there's you know nothing better to do. I should just go out and run and burn off some energy. Uh, instead, I was trying to you know make sure the business was doing well and whatnot. So it was just a big ball of stress. <laughs> Debate one way or another. So yeah. But I've, I've done three marathons. I've probably done, I don't know, 15 half marathons or something like that. A number of five K's and 10 K's throughout the years. It's, uh, it's interesting the number of ideas we've had and, and oftentimes the clarity that you get when you're on a long run. So you kind of get the, the lizard brain occupied with like just the, the keeping the body moving and, uh, you know, just out on a trail, uh, everything quiet, uh, it's, it's amazing how many times we've had like an idea or two that have led to us doing something with the business that's had the outsized impact. I think one of the, one of the more recent ones was actually during 2020, we wound up with a lot of people in between projects just because projects canceled and, and the sales pipeline dried up. So we started uh, what we called great causes um, where, you know, if we're going to have people who are idle and we're, you know, we don't have anything else, like let's find, you know, great nonprofits or even profitable companies who have a meaningful cause and let's just contribute our talent that direction and uh, see what we can build. And it honestly has been so successful. We're, we're continuing to do it. So we're, we're continuing to find nonprofits and other orgs that, uh, you know, we can, we can lean into and help out because at our size, we just, we wind up with a lot of capacity in between projects. So let's, let's put it to good use. 
how does future look like to you for your agency? Where do you see this going? Like how, where do you want to take it? It's hard to answer because if you would have told me 10 years ago, we'd be a company of almost 100 people now, I probably would have spat out my coffee. Um, I don't think any, either of us thought we would kind of get to the state that we're at. But now that we're here, I see a unique opportunity for Testable to be regarded as the premier consulting agency in North America and potentially the world. So I think that there's a lot of work to do between now and then, no doubt about it. But I think if we can continue to find, you know, awesome humans to, to join our team, if we can continue to, um, you know, create a more broad and diverse set of offerings and services that our, our clients need, uh, and if we can continue to be a more diverse company so that we get all of the benefits of, of problem identification and solutions that those unique perspectives bring, I think we can really be an example for others to follow in our industry. So that's, that's where we want to get to. I think it's hard to, like our vision was to get to 150 people by the end of next year. And I think we'll do it. After that, we're, we're probably going to start taking a deep breath and, and looking out more like three-year, five-year time frame, and, and see what's a good stretch goal from there. I'm not sure exactly what the team will come up with yet. Some more runs might be in your future for some of those lizard brain moments. Yep, I like that, that phrase. Yep, that's, uh, <laughs> that's exactly when the magic happens. So, Well, this was a great chat, Todd. Thank you so much for joining us today and providing some insights. Um, so where folks can find you are on your uh, testdouble.com, your company LinkedIn. Uh, you guys are also on the Twitter, if I'm not mistaken, and then your personal LinkedIn profile, testdouble, Todd. So Thanks so much for joining us. Um, yeah, thank it. you for having me. It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure. So that's it, everyone. If you learned something today, laugh, tell somebody about the podcast. Have a great day. Thanks for listening. Find our other episodes on agencies.bill.com. Plus we're listed anywhere you find your favorite podcast.